Hear God call us to worship from Psalm 84 and Malachi 4. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Beloved, our God is at work and he's moving everything toward Jesus, which means that the work that he is doing in us is he is moving us to see our sin and our need for a savior. And so when we gather together for worship, that is what God is doing, working in us, is showing us our sin and our brokenness and showing us our need for Jesus and showing us how everything is moving toward Jesus and how much we need him, but not just for forgiveness of our sins, but how much Jesus continues to work in us to empower us to be a people throughout the whole of our lives who are a people who are repenting and believing the gospel over and over and over. And so we're going to do that this morning by acknowledging and confessing our sin and our brokenness and seeing God's grace to us through the shed blood of his son Jesus. And so let's confess and acknowledge our sin together. We're going to do that out loud. Um, and, and feel free to say it out loud, quietly, but out loud. Um, and then uh, after we do that, We'll take a few moments to uh, more quietly and personally go before our God and acknowledge and confess our sin and see our need for our Savior. But let's uh, acknowledge our sin together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of the overflow of your love, you made all things good. We were created in your image to love you, each other, and the place you put us. Our lives were covenant, worship, work, rest, and love. But when tempted, we turned away from you and ran headlong into sin and destruction. In this, we brought shame, guilt, and curse onto ourselves and all of creation. Because of this, we spend our days striving to feel fulfilled. But your grace is changing us. Instead of our work being an expression of worship, it is what we look to for our identity. But your grace is growing us. Instead of our relationships being an expression of the love Christ has for us, we often expect others to be our Savior. But your grace is saving us. Thank you that in Jesus we are forgiven. Father, show us that the fullness of your love has come to us in Christ. Jesus, your love for us drove you to the cross to cover our sin with your blood. Convince us that the resurrection means your love has defeated sin and death. Holy Spirit, reveal to us that all of our attempts to be complete apart from Christ are futile. Change us, grow us, shape us by your love. All is grace, 
All is gift. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly go before our God, confess and acknowledge your sin and brokenness, and see his grace to you in Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy to us, which is fully and finally given in your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to work into us to see the depth of our sin and the depth of our need for Jesus, that we might grow, that we might grow in repenting and believing the gospel over and over again. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, God wants us to hear his assurance of his forgiveness to us. His assurance of his grace. His assurance that he is at work in us. And that's going to come from the, the, the three separate books that we're going to look at today. And what I want us to hear in this is the forgiveness that we have in Christ. The restoration that we have in Christ. And the hope that we have for everlasting life with Christ. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while... I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Beloved, we are forgiven. We have hope. We have restoration because of what our Christ has done. So now let's declare together the work that God has done for us in Christ and the work that he continues to promise to do in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to ask us this question and then let's declare our faith together. Those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, what is it that we believe about what Christ has done for us and what he continues to do in us? We believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Although he was tempted just as we are, he lived a perfect life without sin. He willingly became our sin on the cross, absorbing the just judgment that is due for our sin. In his death, Jesus defeated sin and death itself. Because of his victory on the cross, the grave could not hold him. Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father where he rules and reigns, interceding for his people. Because of the Spirit, our lives are now in union with Christ. All that is true of Jesus is true of us. We have been released from the dominating power of sin. In Jesus we are free to confess our sin without fear of punishment. We now live in confidence that there is no corner of creation his salvation does not claim. Our desire is to grow more and more like Christ. We long for the day when the last will be first, the lost will be found, 
and the curse will be no more. Heaven and earth reunited. Jesus is ours, and we are his forever. good to be with you all in this way. It's fun to look out and see your faces, excuse me, see your eyes, and that at least is a start, right? But it, it's something. And so we're very glad that you are willing to brave and come out here and gather. We look forward to the time when we can add singing and add communion. Those are all things we desperately long for, as we hope you do as well. So we look forward to that. Um, I know it's a little bit strange for me to be this far away from you. It probably would make more sense if I was on the floor. Um, but just because of our wisdom we receive from our infectious disease doctor and others, it's probably best that I stay this far away um, so to protect you from me is basically what he told me. Dave, you need to protect your people from you. Um, so it's probably good that I'm, I'm this far away, but it's strange for me. Um, but it's a start, right? And we thank God for his kindness to us. And we will continue to pray for his restraint of the virus and other things and hope for his uh, good work toward us and bringing us back together like we should be. So we look forward to that. This morning, we're looking at these last three books of the Old Testament, the last three prophets. We're looking at Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. Um, these, are the th these three books fit together because they are the only books that are written after the exile. And if you wonder what in the world he's talking about with exile, I'll explain that in my introduction. But just know these three books fit together. Um, here's a little bit more about them. We are going to focus on all three, but know this. Zechariah and Haggai were primarily written to motivate God's people. So hang on to that. Malachi is much more intuitive and much more practical. So the bulk of the content of what we're going to look at this morning is going to be from the prophet Malachi. Okay? But we are going to touch on Zechariah. We are going to touch on Haggai. I just want to get it in your head that those books are really where God is trying to motivate his people. That said, here is the takeaway. Here's the best I can to do to billboard the idea that I want to show you from these, from these books this morning. <clears throat> here's the big idea. We are a motivated people because... Jesus is continuing to heal us. You hear that? We are a motivated people because Jesus is continuing to heal us. Make sense? For those of you that want to take notes, that's what I'm going to try to show you. That's the big idea. That's what I want you to take away. And this is the last sermon in the Old Testament. Some of you perhaps may be excited because you're tired of rummaging through all these prophets and weird names and stuff. It's all God's Word. It's good. But we're going to move from this next week into the New Testament, and John Paul is going to launch us into the New Testament starting in Acts. So I want to, I've cobbled together some verses from these books. I want to read these to you because I hope that they give you the heart and the essence of these three books together. So listen to this. This is God's Word. It is true. You can bank your entire life on it. This is from God to us. Hear this. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. 
Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Pause just a second. Did you notice what phrase is repeated over and over in these verses? The Lord of hosts, six times. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to it. Here's Zechariah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now Malachi, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do, not, you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing 
until there is no more need. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make Jesus irresistible to us. That we would behold you, Lord Christ, as our one and only, the lover of our souls, the one who cares for us, the one who desires to be with us forever and ever. Oh God, please get glory from our time today. Bring us again and again to the glory of your salvation and the good news that you have for us in Christ. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Remember the point that we're looking at this morning is this, that we are a motivated people because Jesus is continuing to heal us. I also mentioned to you that we need to think about this idea of exile. Where in the world does that come from? Well, since this is the last message in the Old Testament, let's just take a couple minutes and review where we've been in the entire Old Testament. Let's start where God starts. Remember, in the beginning, God created. He spoke and the worlds came into existence. He made mankind. He made mankind in his image and for his glory. For us, in the beginning, life was covenant and work and worship and rest and love. He even endowed us and built us with a mission to love him, to love others, and to love place. We were put on this earth to spread the glory of God. We were put on this earth to worship him and to love people. It wasn't long after that that temptation came, and we gave in to that temptation. We rebelled against God, and therefore we sinned, and we brought death and disease and corruption and curse not only on ourselves, but creation itself. But sin did not get the last word. God pursued those that rebelled. He pursued Adam and Eve in grace. He initiated communication with them. He saved them. And he did that through a blood sacrifice. Remember in Genesis 3, God clothed them with animal skins, which he had offered. From the beginning, from the beginning of our rebellion, the response and the answer to that has always been the grace of God through the power of blood sacrifice. Something had to die in order for us to be reunited with God. Not long after that, God raised up Abram. God reached out to him and summoned him through the gospel. He told Abram, I am your righteousness, Abram. You can't find it any other way. You have to have righteousness in me. And Abraham entrusted himself to God. Abraham received righteousness. We even looked at Genesis 15 together in that beautiful scene of God promising to fulfill everything. Can't go there now. God made promises to Abram that from him, God would bless the entire world. He would bless families. He would give Abraham a land. Everyone would be affected because of what God would do through Abraham and his family. 
Ultimately, Abraham had a son. Ultimately, that grew into a nation. Ultimately, that nation ended up in captivity in Egypt. Remember this? But what happened? God did not want his people living in captivity. So he raised up Moses. And God brought his people out of captivity through blood sacrifice. It was the power of the sacrifice. It was the power of the blood that gave his people life and brought them out of captivity. It was by grace that they were brought out of Egypt through the significance of a sacrifice dying on their behalf. And God's people came out of Egypt and they were headed to the land that God had promised. But before they got there, they met with God on the mountain. And it was there that God codified the law. And remember, that law was to establish his people living by grace, living by the gospel, living their lives based on God being the center of who they are. So part of the law had to deal with the sacrifices. Animals had to be sacrificed. There had to be a substitute for them between God and their sin. So therefore, those sacrifices reminded the people of God that they needed to continue to repent and believe in God, right? The other aspect of God's law were the commands. The Ten Commandments is what we most commonly think. Those commandments were written in order for God's people to know how they are to believe God and how they are to express their faith. So that the sacrificial laws and the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, were meant to show them grace. They were there because God had brought them out of captivity and saved. So God's people finally made it, made it to the land of promise, the promised land, the land that God had given them. And it was to be the place where they set up, centering their life on God. It was to be the place in which they lived outward-focused lives, just like in the garden, in which they were to love God and love others and summon the nations to hear this message of grace and repent and believe and trust in the one true and living God. But his people wanted to be like every other nation. So they wanted a king like other nations. They wanted to live like other nations. Ultimately, the kingdom was divided, the kingdom split, and ultimately, both parts of the kingdom ended up in captivity. They rebelled against God because they didn't want to live the way God wanted them to live. And therefore, as a consequence of that, God's people were taken into captivity. But their rebellion didn't get the last word, did it? God has always purposed to have a people to grow his church, to spread his kingdom, so he brought his people back from captivity, back from exile. He brought them back out of Babylon and some out of Assyria, back to the place that he had given them so that they could center their lives on him again. And these three books that we're looking at today are where we pick up the story. Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi are the only prophets that are written after the exile. The only prophets that are written after God's people return from being in captivity. They are the prophets that, if we look at them together, like we're going to try to today, 
They show us the whole story of what God's message was for God's people when they returned. So here's what I want to do. Remember the main point? We are a motivated people because Jesus is continuing to heal us. What I want us to do is look at the message of these three books, and then I want us to think about application. Got me? So we're going to like the message of these three books, trying to illustrate that main point, and then we're going to get into application. So let's look at these three books. We're going to take two of them together. We're going to take Zechariah and Haggai together. Because remember, these books were both written to motivate God's people. They're back in the land, all right? Now here is, was their primary objective. When they returned from exile and returned to the, to the land that God had given them, their primary hope was to rebuild the temple. So when they returned, they started to rebuild the temple. They had authorization from a secular king. They had resources from a secular king. They had protection from a secular king. They had someone who didn't believe in their God at all who was saying, go back, rebuild, here's money, here's supplies, here's protection. That is amazing. (laughs) And that is God at work. So they begin to rebuild, and as you might guess, as they began to rebuild the temple, they got part of the way done, and then they decided to stop. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will find the full story of returning, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, and a bunch of other things. And if you dive a little bit deeper than that, if you look at Ezra chapter 5, you will find this. When God's people stopped building, God sent Haggai and Zechariah to them. And Haggai and Zechariah were meant to motivate God's people to begin to rebuild again. So this is what Haggai does. He has this phrase that he uses more than 12 times in two chapters. It's the phrase, Lord of hosts. And what Haggai is saying to God's people, they've stopped building. They've become complacent. And Haggai says, you have forgotten the Lord of hosts. Meaning, you have forgotten that God has all power and is completely sovereign. And he works in things that are seen and he works in things that are unseen. Don't forget that your God brought you back. Don't forget that your God is protecting you. Don't forget that your God has a plan for the whole world. He is the Lord of hosts. He commands everything. Now that's kind of motivating, isn't it? I don't know about you, but sometimes I get wrapped up thinking about myself and things that I feel like I can do or things that I can't do. And there are things that I've started that I've stopped because I've begun to focus on myself. Can you relate? Maybe you can. Haggai specifically says, don't forget that God is sovereign. He is the Lord of hosts. Your God has all power in heaven and earth. And just if you look at your history, you can tell. You can see everything he's done. Because you had no chance of getting, uh, uh, no chance of restoration when you were in the garden. No chance of having any children. No chance of having a nation. No chance of returning from captivity. No chance of getting to the promised land. No chance of having any supplies to build. No chance of being restored after you rebelled. No chance, no chance, no chance, but God. Haggai saying, don't forget your God. 
Zechariah comes along, and his book is full of prophecy. And we can't get into the details of all the prophecy this, this go-round. But I will tell you this. Chapters 1 through 8 are primarily, mostly, about the future, a little bit about the past. Remember, for the original audience. And chapters 9 through 14 are all about the future for the original audience. You follow me? It's important I get that in there. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us. I'm just trying to get you to think about those books had specific meaning to their original audience. That's where we have to start. And it may come across as cryptic when you read through those prophecies. I get that. But just hear me out. I know that many of you have been taught that the way you understand prophecy is to think about prophecy in the scripture as a code book that needs to be cracked. And I want to tell you that's not true. I know that it is possible that many of you have been taught that you need a gigantic chart that's about 20 feet tall and 50 feet wide in order to understand prophecy. And I want to tell you that's not true. You don't need an expert to understand prophecy. You don't understand prophecy in the same way that you understand Romans. There are different genres of writing. There are different ways to interpret. They're not meant to be interpreted with every literal word like reading a contract. They're picture books. They're giving impressions. And the hope of prophecy is not that you can finally meet someone who can connect the cryptic message and crack the code from a prophecy and connect it to an event that's going on right now in our lives and therefore understand when we're going to get out of here. That's not the way God ever intended prophecy. It was never intended to be a code book. And I say this not only to those who have been exposed to that for a long period of time because it's really hard to unlearn that. I say this to those of you who may be in middle school, elementary school, high school, college. I say this to you as well who haven't had any exposure to that before. Because that is a dominant way that prophecy is mentioned and talked about. And I want to say if you are exposed to that, run the other way. Because what that view of prophecy has done, on the one hand, it has, and I mean this literally, scared the hell out of people. Prophecy has been used to get people out of hell and to choose heaven, not the way prophecy was meant. And on the other hand, that prophecy, though, that interpretation of prophecy has been used so that God's people think that our great hope is to escape this world. Usually through something that you might have heard called the rapture. And that our great hope is that actually at some point we will vanish out of here. Vanish from the earth. And that's our great hope is escaping this. And I want to say that is so profoundly wrong. This is part of the reason why we emphasize the four-part story. Remember the fourth part? Restoration. The great hope that we have is that heaven and earth will be reunited. 
The great hope we have is that the kingdom, that Jesus and the new Jerusalem is coming down, that heaven is coming down to reunite with earth. That is what Revelation tells us. That's the image. Our hope is not to escape. You see, the prophecies that Zechariah gives are preoccupied with the coming of Jesus and with the coming of his kingdom. If you look back at the verses that we read together, if you look at chapter 12, uh, that's, the verse, that's, that's, one of, that's some of the verses we read. It talks about looking on him whom we have pierced in his side. Who's that talking about? Jesus. We know that, right? And on that day, the floodgates are going to open and, and the provision of David and his descendants are going to be cleaned because of what happened and they will be forgiven and restored. Zechariah gives the prophecy so that his people, God's people, will be motivated by the coming of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom, which started when he was born. His first words when Jesus began his public ministry were, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God was motivating his people who had stopped building his church. He motivated them by saying, do you remember who I am? I'm the sovereign God of the universe. And more than that, Jesus is going to come. And you are part of the coming of Christ, and you are looking forward to him. And when he comes, he will establish his kingdom through his birth, through his ministry, through his life, death, and resurrection. Do you see how much that should motivate us? That's how God was motivating his people then. That's how he motivates us now. He wants all of us today, right now, to be blown away at his sovereignty, to remember that Jesus is coming again, and that he has started a kingdom that cannot fail and that ultimately will, resu will result in the reuniting of heaven and earth. Our greatest hope is that. So let me summarize. God was motivating his people to live on earth and not look to escape. God was motivating his people to live in confidence and not in fear because Jesus was coming. God was motivating his people to build the kingdom, not live in fear that evil would continue to grow and grow and grow and threaten God's plan and threaten God's people so much that our hope is just to get out and escape through some secret way. Make sense? Whether you agree with that or not, just try to take that in. Malachi, the one that is much more intuitive and practical. Malachi was written about 100 years after God's people finished rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall. So Malachi gives us an insight into what God thinks of his people about 100 years after they return from exile. And what Malachi does is that God, through Malachi, specifies four things that God is concerned about. One, worship. We read it from chapter one. 
God is really concerned because his people are watering down worship. They are thinking that they can take sick sacrifices, half-baked sacrifices, blemished sacrifices to God, and that everything's fine. As if to say, God, we really don't need the pure, unblemished blood to go before us and you. It doesn't matter what animal we use, whether it's sick or lame or whatever. We don't need unblemished. We're going to bring some good stuff, and at least we're going to throw in an animal, and everything will be great. They were not anchored in the blood. They were not hoping in the power of the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And God was calling them out. Two, God was concerned about the teachers. Instead of teaching people the full scope of God's gospel and his plan and his word, the teachers weren't living the truth and they were showing partiality. That's what we read together. They weren't teaching the whole thing. They were showing partiality. They'd be impartial in what they were saying. They were hedging their bets. I'm going to teach this here and this over there. I'm not going to teach the whole thing to the whole people of God. Three, God was concerned about marriage. In particular, it looked like that God's people had adopted the cultural view of marriage, which meant that men were being unfaithful to their wives and that they were pretty much just walking away. And God was saying, no, 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 no. Marriage is important. Marriage is important. Faithfulness to each other is important. And finally, in chapter 3, God talks about their money. And what he says to them is that you're robbing me. That's the message of those three books. So here's the application. Here's where I want us to try to bring this home, at least start to. What I want us to do is do some self-examination, okay? So here's my application. Let's do some reflection. Let's do some self-examination. And let's start that off by trying to be level-headed. My hunch is that if you're like me, you can read what goes on in the Old Testament and think to yourself, you know, I'm so much more sophisticated now. I'm better than those that lived in the Old Testament. I don't have the same problems that they did. So therefore, I'm not really going to struggle in these ways that they did. I'm past a lot of that stuff. And I want you to understand, if you'll think about this, if you're bent like me to have this, you know, chronological snobbery, or because I live now as opposed to a little while before that, you know, I'm therefore better, smarter. If we lived during the time when this was given, my hunch is actually, well, I am convinced I would have done the same thing that they did. And I'm going to suggest to you that maybe you would have too. Let me explain. To put ourselves in their sandals, Okay, everybody's awake. To put ourselves in their sandals would mean that I am rebelling against God. I am not doing what he wants me to do. I am not being who he created me to be. I am not living an outward-focused life. I want to be like other nations and other people. And God says, because of that, you're going to go into captivity. 
And if I put myself in their sandals, I not only have to acknowledge all of that, I have to admit that when I was taken into captivity, I was basically, you know, taken out of my house. And I was basically lined up and said, hey, you got to walk to this other place and live in this place you've never been before. And as I was marching to this new place to live in captivity, I could look back and see that my hometown, my city, was being burned to the ground and pillaged. And then I had to go to a new place where I didn't know the language and I didn't know the customs, but I liked a lot of it because it was really intriguing to me. And I had to be there 70 years, and then God brought me back to my hometown, and the first thing I have to do is build the temple? Well, I think that I would have been excited about that. I really do. I think that I would have started helping, rebuilding, doing everything I could to rebuild the temple. And then I would have started thinking, but what am I going to do for my house? I got to build my house. I got to restart my career. And I got to work with other people who are reestablishing their careers because we got to build this economy back. So we started this thing over here, this temple. We started that, but how about we give most of our energy to this? Sound familiar? So let's not pile on. Let's have a little bit of compassion. Let's also be self-aware enough to realize we probably would have done some of the same things, maybe all of the same things that they did. Therefore, let's try to be level-headed and humble and open as we do some reflection. And in doing some self-examination, let's combine those four things that God points out into three. So let's take worship and teaching as one, okay? Let's do some reflection on that. You see, in essence, what God wants from worship from his people And in essence, what God wants from the teaching of those he has called to teach his people, what God wants is for us, me and you, to be rigorously God-centered. Straight up, no compromise, God-centered. Now, here's where things are going to get touchy. And here's where I really want you to have an open mind and just try to think with me for a few minutes. Just please be open about thinking about this, okay? The opposite of being God-centered is being man-centered. And I just want you to be open to the idea of try to have a panoramic view of God's people, the church, at least in our country. And I want you to think about, if you will, Please just consider this, how man-centered we are and how committed we are to being man-centered. Just, just try to see this if you would. We have changed the message. We have tried to change the message of Christianity into here's what Jesus has done. Now you make the final decision and save yourself. You have all the power. And to add to that, we even think that we have the power to forfeit that 
as if to say to Jesus, to look him in his face and say, Jesus, I know you've lived, I know you've died, I know you've raised from the dead for me, but it just isn't enough, I'm out. We've turned the message, God's message, into centering on man and man having all the power and ultimate power, both to get in and to get out. When you think about songs that we love, how many of the songs that we love are focused on what I am going to do for God rather than on what God has done for me? Rather than on what God is doing and the story that he's telling. We change our songs to even focus on us. As leadership, do you know what it's like to feel pressure to write a vision statement that says, hey, this is what we are going to do to transform the world for God? Do you know how appealing and how tempting that is? to take the whole thing that we're doing as a church and boil it down to these are the five things that we are going to do to transform the world for God. In other words, look at us. Look at what we do. Look how God is blessing what we plan. Do you realize how many times Christianity is presented in this way? Why in the world would God do anything for us until we take the first step? Do you realize, this has been going on for more than 30 years, that the church's view of baptism is, I have decided, I got the t-shirt. To change baptism into self-focused, rather than picturing the grace of God and God's power? And God's saving? Now, there are those who believe that baptism should be after faith and believe that it is still about God, but those are very, 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 very far and few between. As a culture, we have turned baptism into my thing, what I do. Do you see? Do you see how we are tempted to turn everything into man-centered? If you're willing just to think about that, please do. Because this, the man-centered thing, is what makes it so difficult to engage an increasingly secular culture. Because we have to constantly deconstruct what everyone thinks about Christianity because what people outside the church see about Christianity is that it is focused on man. And it is just another crutch, another way that we can use certain principles to get certain outcomes that we want. And I want to tell you that the opportunity is incredible because people are looking for more. 
People are tired of being beat up. They're tired of being beat down. They want more. They want something that's more substantial, something that's more consistent, something that's very nuanced, something that is very deep, something that is ancient, something that includes the future that's not just escape, something that influences my now, and something that's connected to what's been going on rather than this little individualized thing that we have tried to turn the message of Christianity into. The opportunity is out there. It's everywhere. It's the people in your neighborhoods. It's the people at work. It's the people that live in the South, Greenville, North Carolina. People are looking for more. And we have the opportunity. And when we say God-centered, just know, I feel the pressure of wanting to turn things into man-centeredness. And when we try to express what it means to be God-centered, just know we struggle with this too. And we will continue because as a church, we are not perfectly God-centered at all. As an individual, I am not God-centered in the way that I should be. But I want to be more God-centered. I want our church to be more God-centered. I want you to want to be God-centered. And one of the ways, and there are tons of ways, some that most of them we probably don't even know, but there are some ways that we've tried to communicate this, being God-centered, so that we can do this, be God-centered together. And one of them is the four-part story. It's why we've said it over and over and over. And another way we've tried to express this is through these little phrases. We believe the Bible's entirely true. We remain God-centered by taking the totality of God's Word. The New Testament is not more true than the Old. God's Word is entirely true. We've tried to anchor on things like God is big and we are small, which means any message you hear ought to extol and exalt God, not us. Quick little story, as quickly as I can tell it. Do you remember this illustration of two people that go to hear the same message? And after the message is over, they leave, and one turns to the other and says, what'd you think? And the first one says, well, it was well organized, it was clear, I understood the application, it was great. What'd you think? And the other person says, I love that man's God. Do you see the difference? And hear me, please hear me. As someone who talks up front for a living, I want to be clear. Clarity's not bad. I want to be organized. Organization is not bad. Helping people understand practical things is not wrong. I think all those are important, but what I think is more important is that I and we crave to come and hear God's word together and extol God. Does that make sense? It doesn't bother me if you visit other churches or go to other churches and you think, wow, that guy is way better organized than Dave. He's much better communicator than he is. Yada, yada, yada. I want you to come back and say, I heard the most amazing message about Jesus. Does that make sense? 
God is big and we're small. If we ever start focusing, for whatever reason, our grid is always, how is it presented? Is it clear what I'm supposed to do? And I want to say, fine, minimize that. Let's hear about Jesus. God is big and we're small. God acts the same. You can't be God-centered if you think there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New. You can't be God-centered if you think there's a way of salvation in the Old Testament and there's a different way of salvation in the New. To be God-centered, understand God acts the same. He always has and he always will. That will never change. Jesus has always been the only way to God. Always, always, always. It's always been through the blood. It's always been through an unblemished sacrifice. He's always had a people. He's always planned for us to love him, love others, and love place. Always, always, always. And Jesus is the gospel. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus. The historical events of his life and death and resurrection are the gospel. The effects of that are legion. But those historical events are the gospel. Marriage. We live in a culture that devalues the family and devalues marriage and devalues sex. Right? We're part of that culture, right? This is not us versus them here. I don't think that stuff is going away. And what God has said about marriage has always been the same. One man and one woman, they have to be believers or they both can be non-believers. That's it. Believers can't marry non-believers. Believers marry, non-believers can marry. The institution transcends even faith, if you will the way God has ordered it. And therefore, we have the, well, I need to say this about sex. Because number one, we've got to get a bit more bold in the church and be willing to talk about it. Because we haven't done a good job of talking about sex. We just haven't. And you can start with me. I haven't done a good job. We need to talk about it more and more. And that'll be very uncomfortable, I'm sure, We need our children to be exposed to what sex is from a biblical perspective. We have to talk about sex more freely in the church because our culture looks at it as a weapon. Our culture looks at it as a bargaining tool. Our culture treats sex as if it is self-centered for self-gratification. And God thinks sex is phenomenal. He created it. God thinks sex is beautiful. It's a gift. God thinks sex is not about self-gratification, but self-giving. And we have got to become more comfortable talking about sex. We have the opportunity to speak into a world 
that longs for wholeness, that longs for transparency, that longs for depth and meaning, that longs for commitment, that longs to get rid of the loneliness, that longs to understand true love, that longs to understand sex is far more than some type of biological act. It is two souls coming together and it has deep connective meaning. We have opportunity to enter into that and to tell whoever will listen. Marriage is one of the hardest things that you can ever do. It's so difficult and so challenging. And we have got to figure out a way as the church to talk about marriage without making it an idol. We've got to figure a way to talk about marriage in which folks that are called to be single are just as holy and just as righteous and just as sanctified, just as much like Jesus as anyone else is. We've got to find a way to stop denigrating singleness and to stop idolizing marriage. We've got to find a way to talk about relationships, marriage or others, in the way God does because our opportunities are legion. And if we will grow in our transparency and grow in our struggle to communicate our struggle, we'll go a long way in being able to talk to others about our faith. Money. This is also hard to talk about, right? It's really hard to talk about this. Where we live in our country, Money is our idol. Everything's defined by money. Getting something done, getting big change to happen in whatever corporate setting or not. Money, 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 money. And what further makes money difficult to talk about is that we can always find people who make more than we do and we can always find people who make less. So we can always feel like we're kind of in the middle, you know? We can always feel like we're okay because I sure don't make as much as that person. Sure make, don't make this little. It's hard to talk about because I don't like doing uncomfortable things and this is really uncomfortable for me. I don't have access to who gives what in our church and I don't want it. But I know that if I'm gonna preach through the word of God, I have to talk about money. And I know that there are many, many people, especially in this area, who have been beaten down by people who talk about money. And I don't want to do that either. Because it's not fun to guilt someone into something. It's not the way God intends. But God is being unmistakably clear here, isn't he? Look at what he says in chapter 3. You rob me. You're stealing from me when you do not give your tithe to the local expression of the church. God says, bring your full tithe into the storehouse. He's talking about the church, period. And I know the national statistics. Here are some of them that stand out to me. In terms of the church, statistically, 20 to 25% of members of the church tithe to the church. The average believer, on average, the believer gives 2.5% of their income to the church. That's as of 2018. 
during the Great Depression, people gave 3.3% to the church. Think about the opportunities that we have together if we all tithed to the church. Look around you. How long has it been since we've given this room a facelift? Sure would be nice to do that. These are things the deacons have talked about. The equipment that we have, whether it's microphones, speakers, whatever, that stuff needs to be changed. If we move forward with live streaming, we're going to have to buy new equipment. And there are other things that we need to fix and change. And I just mentioned those to you because those are just surface stuff. That doesn't really matter in a way, although people do care about this room and how it looks. But can you imagine if all of us tithe to the church? Can you imagine how involved we could be in other works that are going on, other church plants? Can you imagine how we could be more invested in partnering with our sister churches in our region? Can you imagine how many churches we could plant east of 95, which is something we've talked to you about? Can you imagine what we can do together if everyone ties to the church? Can you imagine that we could together prioritize what God prioritizes in his word? Doing works of mercy and planting churches? Can you imagine if we could do that together? There is so much we could do. You see, giving, tithing, and offering above the tithe is God's invitation to us to say, come on, I'm inviting you to work with me as I'm doing my work in the world. It's God's invitation to say, yes, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use all of you, your mind, your heart, your resources, your time, everything. This is what gives your work during the week value, that God uses everything about you, everywhere, all the time. My job is not more important than yours. Collectively, we're doing the work of God. Do you see? We have this opportunity together. Now, here's my little side note. In thinking about, in this application part of doing some self-examination, here's my last thing. Take someone with you. Take Jesus with you as you examine. As more important than perhaps anything else I've said, take Jesus with you when you examine. Otherwise, everything I've said is just going to sound like a new to-do list and a new morality, and that's not what I want, and I don't think it's what God wants. Take Jesus with you when you self-examine. You know, the prophets have a fascinating way of communicating Jesus. Oftentimes, it's super clear about the coming of Christ and whether his side is going to be pierced, that we know exactly what it is, or other descriptions of him coming, being a suffering servant. There are all kinds of explicit statements. And other times, the prophets describe Jesus in the effects of what Jesus has done through his life and death and resurrection. The effects of that. And the reason why we read Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 several times with the service is so that you would get a sense of the effect of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the son of righteousness will rise 
with healing in its wings. The effect of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is healing. Have you ever been standing on the edge of the seashore or maybe taking a walk in the morning or sitting on the back porch or been in the mountains? Have you ever been in a place in which the sun comes up over the horizon? You know what it's like when the sun comes up over the horizon? You begin to feel the warmth of the sun. The darkness begins to dispel. It's like a new day comes to life. Trees look more vivid. Birds are singing. People are moving around. Things are happening. Malachi is saying that is the effect of the gospel in your life through Jesus. That the rays of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection are coming into you. And they're bringing life into you, dispelling darkness. And they are healing you. And that means when you examine yourself, take Jesus with you. Because you might find out that you have things in your marriage that you need to repent of. And there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus. It means when you think about teaching and think about the church and maybe your history or maybe uh, confusion about present or maybe about things you've read or whatever it is and you're thinking about, oh, I haven't been so God-centered. There's forgiveness and healing. And when you think about your money, bring Jesus with you. If you haven't been giving, consider it with Jesus because he'll heal you there too. And through Jesus, maybe we all might collectively crave God-centered way of life and marriages that reflect Jesus' love for his bride and that we would be a generous people that give to his church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us your word. There's a lot to take in. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Uh, Would you help us each and every day to bring Jesus into our lives and to bring the significance of your death and resurrection, Christ. We pray that you would continue to heal us. Spirit, confirm in us forgiveness and the love of the Father and the power of Christ. Fill us, Holy Spirit, with the fullness of God, we pray. Amen. Remember, as you leave this morning, if you'd go out these doors and exit the back half of the building, that would really be helpful to us. Um, It's really good to see you again. I look forward to next week. Thank you for enduring. I know that's probably the longest I've ever preached at Christ Pres. (laughs) Holla is what I heard, yes. Um, Just so you know, the elders told me to go longer because we're cutting the service shorter. (laughs) No, um, I appreciate you enduring. Um, Would you please stand if you would like to? You may stand. You don't have to, but if you want to. Um, God is always determined to bless his people. This is how worship services ended way back in the Old Testament. With the priests, they would come out and give a benediction so that God's people would leave knowing that the blessing of God was upon them. So I want to repeat these words for you that are way back in the book of Numbers. And I want you to live like you believe these words are true as you take Jesus into your life. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he's going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever and even today his presence is with you and one day he will bring shalom. Heaven and earth reunited forever and we'll be with our King.
Amen. Go in his peace.